Well, good morning. Welcome to everyone who's joining us on site and those who are joining us online this morning. It was a very, very busy week around here these last couple of days, but it was uh, a busyness of energy and excitement, and we are so thankful uh, to, to Athena and the army of volunteers from our congregation who helped pull this off. Can we just, can we just give them a thank, appreciation? Thank you so much to bring uh, new life within our church and to our community around us. It was a wonderful, wonderful week. Well, we are here now in week two of our new sermon series where we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And if you were with us last week, the first thing that we learned, and maybe this is the first time you encounter this, is that in the Bible, they're never actually called the Ten Commandments. Sometimes they're, it's referred to as there's ten of them, and other places it's referred to as commandments, but nowhere do we find the phrase Ten Commandments. What we actually find is the phrase Ten Words. And for the last 3,500 years, these 10 words have been words to live by. And so hopefully you already learned a little bit last week and maybe even today on how we refer to what we are familiar with referring to as the 10 commandments. But I was thinking this past week, what do people commonly think of when they hear the word 10 commandments? What's the first phrase or the first idea that comes to their mind? And so I, I thought about it a bit myself and I asked some other people and and some of the thoughts that came to mind is, you know, one person said the first thing they think of is the movie, 1956 Charlton Heston, right? Uh, it's on every Easter on ABC. You can be guaranteed, if you haven't seen it, wait till Easter, ABC, it'll be on. <laughs> Charlton Heston movie, 1956, where he plays the role of Moses. Some people think of the Ten Commandments and their mind goes to Moses, this man who is a prophet of God, the instrument of God in the Exodus, the exodus of the people of God. Some people said that think of the Ten Commandments it takes their mind to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel. And for sure, those are the people that were in slavery in Egypt that through, the, through God's work in Moses, they were freed from slavery and taken out into the desert to Mount Sinai. Some other people said Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given to the nation of Israel through Moses. How? On tablets. Some people said it was on tablets. We can today still see monuments that are built around North America in particular of, of the Ten Commandments on tablets. These stone tablets that were initially written by the finger of God. So some of these things. This, really, it's this story about Moses being God's prophet and instrument to bring redemption and rescue his people, the Israelites, and bring them to Mount Sinai where they could worship God. And in the course of worshiping God, God gave them the ten words to live by, and he wrote them by the finger of God on the stone tablets. We're probably familiar with most of that, agreed? Probably familiar with most of that, agreed. But let's, let's push it a bit further. What if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Now, I'm not going to ask you to, to speak out loud right now, quite, maybe later, but not quite yet. We'll have a test at the end. Uh, but the Ten Commandments, if I ask you what's the purpose of them, we might have less people with a clear answer. You see, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to become the basis of the law that would govern the relationship between God and his people and amongst the people of God. Now, if I were to ask you to name those Ten Commandments, I don't, I don't know how many people think they can name all ten of them, but I'm going to guess it's not a large number. And a lot of research has been done into this. And part of the reason I ask this question at the beginning is because through the research that's been done, what's been revealed is that the ten words to live by, the ten commandments, are something that people are very familiar with. The basic story is something people are very familiar with, but the importance and the purpose of the ten commandments is gradually slipping from the minds of our society. 
See, one recent survey that was done asked people if they could remember the Ten Commandments. It also asked them if they could remember who the members of the band The Beatles were. It asked them if they could remember who was in the Brady Bunch. Guess which one came in third, came in last? People knew the Beatles and the Brady Bunch more than the Ten Commandments. They were asked, do you know the ingredients of a Big Mac? Two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and sesame seed bun, right? We know that. But do we know all Ten Commandments? I used to work at McDonald's, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about that. So you have, it's, it's like part of the training. They make you memorize that little run. They don't. It's just on the commercial. If you're a child of the 80s, you know it. But see, people don't necessarily know the Ten Commandments the same way. And as they did further research, they found that people's opinion, not even their awareness, but their opinion of the Ten Commandments is starting to slip as well. Here's something they found that was really interesting. When they asked people's personal perspectives on individual commandments, to sort of list them individually, and, and is this still relevant to today's society? As they did that, here's what they found on a worldwide scale. They found that the commandments to do with, like, you know, don't murder and don't no adultery and theft, things like that, there's six of them of that nature. And worldwide, there was like a resounding 95% of people said, yes, those are still relevant. Those are still important to society. What about the other four? See, there's other four that just happen to be the ones that deal with governing our relationship with God. The four that happen to deal with our relationship with God, and people are asked the same question about that. They jump from 95% down to 25%, saying that, yes, those are still relevant today. See, the conclusion of these series, the research that's done into this, the reason we're doing this series this summer, the conclusion of this research is that society is still committed to the social standard of the six commandments that govern our relationship with others. But because of increased secularization, it has removed the need for the first four. The first four that govern a person or a people's relationship and their commitment to God. See, the Ten Commandments are like, some of you will remember this, the Ten Commandments are like that store that used to exist called Pick-A-Pop. Who remembers Pick-A-Pop? Yeah, it was awesome. Our Pick-A-Pop back home was connected to a video store. That's Friday night right there, right? You rent a movie, you get some Pick-A-Pop, you're set for the weekend. Pick-A-Pop, you go, for those who don't know, you would go in, you get like this red tray, and you just sort of walk the aisles, and you would, you'd, literally, it, it wasn't misleading, you would pick a pop, and you would put it into your tray, and you would pick what you wanted. Yes, I want root beer, I want some cola, I want some grape, cream soda, please. Put a little bit of orange in there, but hold on, don't want any Diet Coke. Lemon, lime, and the pineapple was awful. So you would stay away from those ones. And that's kind of how people treat the Ten Commandments these days. I'll take a little don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat with my wife, but you know, I'm not sure I want any rules that obligate me to have a relationship with God. It's kind of how it's being treated by society nowadays. Now, it's part of the reason that we're doing this series. And if there's one thing that I pray that we have this renewed awareness of over the course of the next few weeks, it's that God has not left that open as an option to us. For us to do the pick-a-pop buffet style with the Ten Commandments is not an option he has left open to us. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 32 through 33, it says, Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience of what? Of all the Lord your God has commanded you. Walk in obedience of everything that he has commanded you. Why? So that you may live. So that you may prosper. So that your days in the land may be prolonged. You see, when these commandments were initially given to the nation of Israel, they established the rules by which they lived in relationship with God and by which they lived as the community of God. These rules not only set them apart from other peoples, but allowed them to live in a way that pointed other peoples towards God. 
with the promise of life and prosperity and to live at peace with God and with others. And even though this was initially given 3,500 years ago to the nation of Israel, it still exists as a gracious experience that we today can still experience. Today, our abiding by the Ten Commandments can still point us to knowing God and point us on ways that we can still show love to other people. And it all begins with the first word. We talked about the first word last week. And as, as Dr. Shepard was here and he explained, the first word, and this is the way that I would phrase it, is about undivided allegiance to God. It's about undivided allegiance to God. Let's just quickly read that. If you want to follow along, this is on Exodus chapter 20. And if you want to use your pew Bibles, it's on page 60. You'll find for the next few weeks, that's where the Ten Commandments are found. Exodus chapter 20 is where you're found. Your pew Bibles, page 20, if you want to follow along. And here's what it says about the first word, beginning in verse 2. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Sorry, I'm going to go, that was verse 3. Sorry, verse 2. It says, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in case you missed last week or need a brief refresher, I'm going to hit a couple really quick main points we want to carry forward from last week's message related to these two verses. Notice that he starts, before he gets to the commandment, God starts by prefacing this first word by establishing the cost of the relationship and by establishing who's in charge. That's where he begins. Think of the setting as, as Israel is gathered on Mount Sinai. We're just 50 days earlier. They were slaves in Egypt who had just been freed. 50 days earlier, 400 years of slavery had ended. And that had been accomplished through Moses as the instrument of God and through the hand of God as God brought plagues upon the nation of Egypt. These plagues that were brought about them by the hand of God. Now these plagues were not just a matter of getting Pharaoh's attention, which they were very good at doing, but it wasn't just about getting his attention. If you study each of the individual plagues, you find that each plague was a defeat of an Egyptian deity. You see, Egypt had multiple gods. They had the god of the Nile, of crops, of livestock, a god of the sun, of health, a god of life and death. And each of the plagues was a demonstration. Each plague was God bringing a demonstration against them that all of these so-called gods that Egypt had established were powerless before Israel's God. And through that, God had brought the people now to Mount Sinai where he's bringing them the Ten Commandments. And he identifies himself out of the beginning as saying, I am the one who brought you out by my power. And this brief history lesson and this command is more than just Yahweh stating that I am stronger. It's more than him saying I am superior. It's more than him saying I'm better than all those other gods. More accurately, what he's saying in verse 2 is he is making a declaration that there are no other gods. There are no other gods. And this sometimes gets missed in how we, are, how, how we talk about God and how we're, we're taught theology. You see, and let me explain this to you, because quite often we're taught about things, especially in the New Testament, through dichotomies. Now, dichotomies are these giving um, comparisons that are incompatible, sort of incompatible opposites. And you'll be familiar with these, especially in the writings of John, you find this. Uh, for example, you know, here's the participation part. I told you it was coming up. This would be easy. For example, we read in the book of John that there's light and there's darkness. Easy. This isn't hard, right? There's good and there's life. There's God, Satan. That's what we think. That's what we're taught. This is, but this is where the dichotomies break down. Because let's process that one for a second. 
Who is Satan? Satan is a fallen angel. If he's a fallen angel, that means that he is a created being. So more accurately, who is the opposite of Satan? We could probably actually say Michael. The archangel Michael would be the opposite of Satan. Both powerful created beings, spiritual beings. Not God. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. You see, God has no other. When he says you should not worship any other gods, it's mainly because there is no other gods that exist. God is the only pre-existent, eternal, uncreated, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God that ever has and ever will be. Amen? All other gods, whether they are gods of Egypt or the gods of our own creation nowadays, are vain imaginations of the human mind that are either brought on by the construct of human intelligence that leads to false religions and false philosophies and mysticism, or they are the elevation of the created to the status of deity, whether that be the creation, nature that's created, spiritual that's created. Uh, Hebrews 1 and 2, it warns us about worshiping angels. There are places and people who worship things of nature and things of spirit, but it takes the created and elevates it to a deity status and puts it on par with God. And God says, no, there is no other gods. And here's the reason this is so dangerous. Because your enemy, the devil, he's not going to stop you from doing this. He's, he, he's not going to argue with you and correct you. You know why? He, he's going to encourage you. He's going to encourage you to continue in this thought process. You know why? Because the result of doing so doesn't lead to an undivided allegiance. It leads to a divided allegiance between you and God. He will allow you to elevate the created He'll allow you to elevate himself to that status because the result is a violation of the first word. The first word that says, have no other gods before me because there are no other gods but me. That make sense? That's the first command. It's the first word to live by. And I want to unpack that for us in part because I had a lot of questions that came in this week about this particular one. I want to clarify that, but also because we need to understand this one in order to really grasp the second one. The second word to live by, because it goes into more detail now about the danger of offering our worship to anything apart from God. And this begins in verse 4. Again, Exodus 20, found on page 60 of the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. And in verse 4, the second word to live by strictly forbids the making and the worshiping of any image of God. We read this in verse 4 through 6, where it says, You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven, created, heaven above or on earth beneath, that would be created as well, or anything in the waters, that would be created, or anything <clears throat> you may not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And keep my commands. This one's an interesting one. I can't comment on all this. I'll give a few brief comments on the, on the last section. Because it comes with a command, but also a warning and consequences. Are all listed in verse 4 through 6. The warning is this. The warning is that this type of sin tends to be progressive in our lives. 
If you look at the way that it's written, it gives this idea that if a person makes an idol, it's only a matter of time that after they make the idol, they eventually bow down to the idol. If they bow down to the idol, they will serve that idol. It's sort of the progression that's being warned about in this passage. Therefore, we can glean from that that what and how we worship has a powerful impact upon who we worship. What and how we worship has a powerful impact upon who we worship. And I've seen this in, in, uh, in, in very wonderful modern churches where, for example, they start to have a bit of a movement towards what sometimes referred to as consumer Christianity. And what ends up happening in some of these places, and I've watched this happen in some places, where there's a church that is completely, completely committed to good theology, but there's a gradual focus that comes in, a focus that moves towards focusing upon the experience of worship rather than the object of that worship. And all of a sudden, when this transaction takes place, this shift takes place, the Sunday service, the ministries of the church begin to actually become an idol where leadership and people of the church are drawn to it and try to keep it moving forward by bowing down to the gods of things like comfort. And we start to bow down to things like comfort. All of a sudden, we start to serve people. And I've seen this happen not just in you know, mega contemporary churches. I've also seen it happen in small traditional churches where hanging on to the traditional way of doing things becomes an idol. And I've seen it in mega churches where we're trying to be the flashiest, newest thing becomes an idol. You can see consumerist Christianity in the traditional and in the contemporary because the issue is not the style of worship. The issue is not the church. The issue is all of a sudden they have made the ministry the idol. It has become the object of worship as opposed to God becoming the object of worship. Does that make sense? And here's the consequence. The consequence is it has an effect upon how we understand proper and improper worship. And that understanding of proper and improper worship, as this passage continues, is contagious. Passes on to generation after generation. Gets passed on. And we all know this to be true. Because we can even just take a step back from our personal faith and our church experience. We know this to be true because we know that from our family of origins, we've received all sorts of things. There's many parts of our lives that are directly influenced and have defined who we are from our families of origin. It gets passed on from one generation to the next. There are some big things. For example, many families will always vote the same way. Many families will hold the same religious beliefs. Many families, and some of you will be familiar with this, will even have generational addictions, generational sins. Things get passed on from generation to generation to generation. It happens in big things. It happens in little things too, like the way you fold towels, right? You know, who gets to control the remote control? You know, do you, do you, are you, are you like, like incivilized and you put the bottle of ketchup out at the, at the barbecue or do you get like a little dish and a spoon, a little more civilized way, right? These things get passed down from families. There's big things and small things get passed down from families. When Nadine and I do marriage prep with couples, this is one of the things that we talk about is that for better or for worse, there are things that have been handed down to these two people who are about to form a new life together. And they have to understand that those things that they've been handed down directs and defines aspects of who they are as people. And they have a choice, though. They have a choice. And this is what God's saying here, in a way. He's saying to us, he says, we have a choice, though, because we don't just have to play the script that we've been handed. If you've been handed a script, uh, a pattern, an example from a family of origin that you find is contrary to the word of God, you have a choice. 
And that choice is that you can either continue to pass it on generation to generation or you can draw a line in the sand and say, it stops with me. It stops with me. I found the truth about how to fold towels. I found the truth of ketchup. It stops with me. But more seriously, I found the truth of addictions. I found the truth of abuse. I found the truth of who God is. And it stops with me. My generation, the generation after me, will uplift the true understanding of who God is. Now, this seems like an easy one to stop. If you read, if you read the second word, it seems like an easy one to stop. Don't make any idols. Okay, well, I'm not going to craft or widow. I'm not going to shape or get any clay. I'm not going to make anything. If I got nothing to make, I got nothing to worship, right? It seems easy at surface level that this is one that we could stop pretty easily. But you see, the second word is a bit more deeper than that. Because God, what he's primarily worried about here, you know, obviously at the surface level, he doesn't want people to have wooden idols and, you know, clay idols in their homes. It, yes, we, we get that. There's a deeper application of this that I think is, is even more important and especially relevant for us today. We don't tend to have idols like that in our homes. But here's what we do tend to do sometimes. You see, this, the, the second word is more about image management. What's image management? And we're familiar with this in our world, too, where, where people try to protect and try to control their image and their power through how they present themselves to the world. We obviously see this in celebrities, where they, if they misspeak or if they get you know, caught by TMZ doing something, they have publicists who come along and, and help them to spin it, help them to, to go do something to kind of recover, to protect their image, image management. Politicians do this. Whenever you see a politician on TV, the suit they're wearing, the color of their tie is not an accident. That's image management. There's professionals who help them do that. Remember back during the season of COVID? What happened when a politician cut their hair? We don't get to cut our hair. Why are you cutting your hair? Image management. And so politicians had to, have, had to intentionally have obviously unkept, uncut hair as part of their image management during COVID. This is this all calculated. One of the best examples of this actually was with Queen Elizabeth I. And it's going back a couple centuries. She came to power at the age of 25. And about three years into her reign, she had smallpox. Now, she recovered from it. But the consequence of smallpox left facial scars on her. Uh, partial baldness, and she lost many, many of her teeth to the point where she actually had a speech impediment. Now, Queen Elizabeth, who came to power at 25 and, and experienced this shortly in and then had a long reign after that, she made an order that there were to be no images made of her until she had selected a craftsman who created what was referred to as a face template in order to, for her to approve to preserve her youth and beauty. And once that face template was completed, which was referred to as the mask of youth, as so it's historically referred to as this mask of youth of Queen Elizabeth I, once that was created, it was distributed to all the painters and the sculptors as a standard by which they needed to abide by. So image management is very, very common in our society. People wear masks to guard their image People wear masks and disguises to guard their character and their power. In the second word, God rejects such distortions of himself. God says, I don't need anybody to manage my image for me, is what he's saying. I don't need you to tweak who I am. I don't need you to try to create some sort of physical manifestation of who I am. I don't need 
your distorted view of who I am. You see, where the first word prohibits worship of anything other than God, the second word prohibits the worship of anything less than God. Does that make sense? And anything that we can make, anything we can make in our own minds or anything that we can envision or anything we can create, at the end of the day is a sheer distortion that diminishes the true understanding of who God is. And there are some religions, there are some Christian traditions, some cultures that are guilty of doing this in a visible way. There are some of those where they, they practice the veneration of relics, of holy relics and of the saints. By saying veneration of saints and relics is an image of God's power. There are others who practice what's referred to as syncretism, where maybe you come from a, a different faith tradition, and maybe outside of Christianity or a different, you know, a different expression of Christianity, and you retain some of that, and then you add sort of your current expression, and, and you synchronize them. You, you bring them together by trying to make them match. But in the act of doing so, you actually end up with a diminished image. More commonly what happens, though, is that people create a diminished image of God in their own mind, of their own ideas. And I run into this probably most often, where people will say things like, you know, I, I just, I, I like the idea of God, and I like most of what I read about God, but I'm just not so sure about some parts. And so I'm just going to focus upon the parts that I like. And they, they lead to this emphasis of one attribute of God over the other in order to make God more palatable. I need to manage his image so he's more palatable. If I'm going to share my faith with my friends, if I'm going to share the truth of God's grace, truth, and love with my friends, I'm good with the grace, truth, and love part, but you know, wrath, judgment, and justice? Eh, might just leave that out. That's image management. That's image management of God, and he doesn't need us to manage his image for us. It's like if you've seen that movie Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby. Remember that? He's got his favorite version of Jesus he prays to. You know, the little eight-pound, six-ounce, cuddly, newborn, infant baby Jesus. That's what he envisions. It's a goofy you know, part of the movie, but that's essentially what a lot of people do when they pick one emphasis over the other, one attribute over the other. I do believe in God, but when I read the Bible, I just focus on you know, his love over his wrath. It's mercy over judgment, especially judgment over me. Judgment over other people, that's fine. Not over me. <laughs> this idea that God is sovereign, sovereign as long as it aligns with my will. Image management. We're creating an image of less than who he claims to be. And here's the thing, all of these things, you know, love, truth, grace, wrath, you know, even eight pounds, six ounce, cuddly baby Jesus, they contain aspects of truth, but they are diminished images of who he is. So how are we to know? This is the last thing I want to cover today for us, because I think it's the question we need to be left with. How do we know? How are we to identify false teaching, false ideas, false images that are less than the true image of God if we're going to faithfully keep the second word to live by? Well, I want you to know this, is that God has not left us without resources. He has given us resources. He has revealed the truth to us in two particular things. Number one, he has revealed it to us through Scripture. And he revealed it to us in Jesus Christ. Scripture is defined, it's God's revelation of himself to us. And I don't mean just select parts of Scripture. I mean cover to cover Scripture. It's his revelation of himself to us, all of Scripture. We read about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 and 17. A familiar passage to a lot of people would say this. It says, All Scripture... 
All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, meaning it is of him and about him. All scripture is God-breathed, of him and about him. And it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've been resourced through the word of God. It teaches us. It instructs us about God and how we can know him better. It leads us to the ability to rebuke. It even rebukes us sometimes. It exposes thoughts and actions that are contrary to God's character, contrary to his will, these things that we would refer to as sins. So it teaches us, it rebukes us, but it then also corrects us. It didn't just leave us in this rebuke. It brings us into correction then as well, where not only does it point out our sin, but it offers a solution and a path back to God, and it trains us. It takes us from just knowing to doing so that we can live in relationship with the one true God. It's a powerful book. It's a powerful revelation. To apply something similar to a different context, imagine, for example, if, if you're, your spouse or some of you like a whole lot and you want to be your spouse, imagine if that person wrote down everything about themselves, their past events and experiences, their accomplishments, their likes and dislikes, their goals and their dreams. Imagine even further, that person had the insight to even be able to include in that accurate expressions about their character and their qualities and their virtues. They wrote that down in a book. And then when you get into a relationship with them, it starts to get serious, they hand you the book. The Guide to Knowing Me. I don't know, guys, don't raise your hands, but I don't know how many guys would appreciate that in my book on the guide to knowing my wife. Don't, just look at me. <laughs> how valuable would that be to have that book? And this is what God has essentially done for us. It's essentially what he's done for us. He's written it down, and he's presented it, and the choice now rests with us on what we will do with it. But not only that, He went one incredible step further. In addition to this book, this revelation of himself that he's given us, he went one incredible step further so that we could have a personal experience of what's written in the book. When God humbled himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, not another God, not a mode or a form of God, Jesus Christ who is God, Colossians 1, 15, 19 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. He is not another God. He is not a form of a God. He is God. Jesus Christ is the spiritually undiminished image bearer of God. And he perfectly reveals God to us. And so when we experience Jesus, we're experiencing God. John 10.30, Jesus said this. He very simply, concisely said this in John 10.30. I and the Father am one. I and the Father am one. Not another God, not a form of God. I and the Father am one. I am God. That means that his teachings, his examples, his instructions to us, give us the ability to personally experience God to go along and to accompany the guidebook that he's given us. He's revealed it to us through Scripture and through Jesus Christ. And the main reason that Jesus came, the main thrust of his message, the main thing he was trying to reveal about God is this. God loves you. 
God loves you. And when you enter into a relationship with him, something incredible happens. And the incredible thing that happens is that your image can be restored. And this starts all the way back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where as God reaches his final act of his creative will, he says, let us make mankind in our image. And so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God created them. Man and woman, he created them. He created us not to create anything in his image, but he can do what he wants. And he did create in his image. And that was humanity. We roll the clock back to the beginning. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. They were not gods. Don't mishear me on that. They were not gods, but they were created in the image of God. And they existed an undiminished relationship with him. But then when sin entered the world, when sin entered the world, the image that Adam and Eve bore became stained. It was tarnished. And the relationship broke down because of it. And now, from that time, right up to present time, all of us know of this longing that exists within us. We know that there's part of us that's incomplete. There's part of us that, that, that longs to be fulfilled, be cleaned, because it's been sullied by sin. That sin that separates us from God. The, the sin that the Bible refers to as leading to death, this, this spiritual death, this relational death between us and God. And out of this gap that exists, out of the sullied nature that exists, out of this diminished image in which people live, it, 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 out of that it leads people to try to fix it on their own, to try to fulfill it on their own, to try to create gods of their own to solve the problem. Even sometimes to elevate themselves to say, well, maybe I'm God. But on the cross, Jesus Christ, the undiminished image of God, died in our place and dealt with our sin. And then he rose victorious to new life and became worthy of our undiminished worship of him. And when we place our trust in him, when we receive his offer of forgiveness for our sins, we are no longer identified by them. Instead, we are identified and experience new life with him. And as we experience new life with him, as we receive that, as we continue to grow in his image and to kind of become more in his likeness, our image is restored. The image that was diminished gradually becomes restored. It's what the, the Bible refers to as this process of, of, of sanctification. Where he, like a craftsman, just kind of whittles away with a chisel, just whittles away anything that does not reflect God in who we are. And as he gradually begins to restore the image of us that sin damaged, as we become more like Christ, with our image begin to shine again. See, the second word to live by, it contains a command not to create or worship any image of God diminished. But for us, it also includes a call. A call of Jesus Christ to have our image restored in him. Isn't that beautiful? So as I close now, I just want to leave you with two questions. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, I just want to ask you to consider what is the basis of that image? What is the authority 
behind how you view God, of who you know God to be. What is the authority? What is the basis behind that? Many people will say, well, it, it comes from Scripture. It comes from my experience of Jesus. Fantastic. Fantastic. But really wrestle with that. Really, really be honest with yourself and say, but are there parts that I've overemphasized? Am I guilty of doing any image management? Am I true in the direction that I'm walking? Am I true in the source? Am I true in the authority of how I've found the image of God? But am I doing any image management? When I share my faith, when I'm afraid to share my faith, what I share, am I managing his image for him? Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't wise as we share our faith and, and try to share appropriate within the context. But we know the difference between us being afraid of sharing part of God's image and being wise on how we share his image. True? So are we managing his image for him at all? The first command says that we're prohibited from worshiping any other God, but the second says that we're prohibited from worshiping anything less than God. And here's the second question. If you have not entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God himself, who came down to pay the price for your sins, who knew that there was a gap that existed between humanity and himself, but he created humanity in his image. He created them to be in a relationship. He invites them into community with himself. And he knew that we could not resolve it on our own, so he stepped in. He made the first move. He solved the problem and waits for us to say thank you. If you have never done that, to receive the freedom of that opportunity, I invite you right now as I close in prayer to pray with me and to say thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sins. I want to walk in new life with you and have that image restored that you've created in me, in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you cared enough to go to such incredible extents, incredible lengths for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice that made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. For those, Lord, who are here, who, who have moved towards you in the past and have accepted that you are the Son of God. Lord, if there's any aspects of their understanding of you that need to be challenged or, or rethought, I just pray. You know, I, I, I can't know what that is for each person, Lord, but you do. The Spirit amongst us and within us knows, and I just pray, Lord, that you would lead us and convict us of those things so that we, not only in our worship of you, would be true to those things but also, Lord, our expression of you to the world around us would not be an attempt to manage you, but to proclaim you truly and fully. And Lord, for those who are here who may not have that relationship, I just pray that right now in this moment, whether online or on site, Lord, that they would take that step and say yes. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sins. Thank you for doing what I could not. Thank you for calling me into relationship for not only forgiving me of my sins, but of making me new in Christ Jesus. As you gave your life for me, I now give you mine. That I would be greater shaped into your image each day of my life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to be your Son and our Savior. Amen.